Can you imagine if I came back here after a six-week stint in the U.S. Senate? All right, this is Congress Two Beers In. Uh, I'm Josh Huter, Senior Fellow at the uh, Government Affairs Institute at Georgetown University. I'm with my colleagues Matt Glassman. How you doing? And Laura Blessing. Hey there. And this is our totally unprofessional look at the 2018 <laughs> midterm elections. Um, there's been a lot of talk about what's going to happen. Uh, there's been a lot of talk about how many seats each uh, party's going to pick up. Um, and we are in no way, shape, or form elections experts by any stretch of the imagination. Um, but uh, we have ideas, so we're going to share them with you on this podcast. Um, so what are we looking at in terms of the House and the Senate? Uh, who, what, who's going to pick up what? What's the state of play? Um, basically, what, what do we think is going to happen? And think putting in big quotation marks because what we thought was going to happen in 2016 obviously didn't. So, Yeah, so a lot of people are talking about that there's going to be a blue wave or that this is going to be a wave election. And, you know, I, I think it's important to note that there is no official definition of what... <laughs> A wave election is or unofficial for or that. unofficial. Yeah. There's, you know, it's it's kind of like the Supreme Court's definition for pornography. We apparently are supposed to know when we see it. Um, so, and you know, it's entirely, you know, the the you know the the polling on this is that it looks like the Democrats are going to take the House, um, but not the Senate. Um, which is unusual. Um, Josh, I mean, you had some thoughts on this recently? Yeah, well, I mean, so just to look at the, the two different chambers, it, it is really unusual to see the breakdown that we have right now. Um, in the House, Democrats are projected. Uh, Cook Political just came out with a revision yesterday that said that Democrats are poised to pick up between 30 and 40 seats in the House. Um, that's up from 20 to 35, 25 to 35. Um, there are some other forecasters like 538. I think they have it at 38.2 seats, which is not a real thing. But they only um, need 23 net gain. Right, exactly. House, so um, and then uh, uh, other margins. other types of uh, other forecasters in the house are looking at like 40, 42. Um, so everybody's kind of in that range, right, between 30 and 40, with the upper range being around 40, 42 um, in the house. And that would give Democrats a comfortable uh, majority in the house. They pick up well more than the 23 that they need in order to get a majority, and then and then some. So, you're working with a decent sized majority and uh, control of the lower chamber. In the Senate, you have almost com uh, uh, different, almost the inverse of the odds out there. Um, you have uh, Republicans who are defending only uh, nine seats, and you have Democrats defending a whole lot more, uh, 26 um, out of the 35 races that we have out there. That's right. So. We've uh, we've got well, a very very ten interesting of them are map. in deep Trump territory. Too. Well, well, they're in Trump territory. I wouldn't say deep Trump territory, nah. right? So, <laughs> so deep Trump territory. The senators are Heidi Heitkamp from North Dakota, Claire McCaskill from Missouri, um, uh, the other one, uh, Bill Nelson from Florida, um, and there are a few others who are in like the marginal Trump territory, which is like Stabenow, uh, Baldwin, um, Donnelly, Donnelly, right in Indiana. Uh, he's, he's in solid Trump territory. So we've got some really, 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 really red states defending Democratic seats, which is not what Democrats want in this particular election. I mean, I think it's worth talking about why this is the case. And I think the basic explanation, of course, is that the Senate doesn't elect all its seats every two years. You have a six-year term, but one-third of the seats roughly in the Senate, plus special elections, are up every two years. And so the Senate map uh, can be distributed based on past history in a variety of different ways. And one thing to note is that what are these seats that are up in the Senate? These are seats that were up in 2012, 
which is a very good year for Democrats. It was a year the Democrats won the presidency uh, and and added to their, their margins in the House of Representatives. And so you had all these senators winning in places where you typically, all things equal, wouldn't expect them to win, but they were carried on by a popular president in, in, a, in a good point in his presidency. And so you have these marginal winners in 2012 who are now up again in 2018 without the benefit of a popular president running for re-election. And that's one of the reasons these are so vulnerable and one of the reasons the map is so out of whack. Right. Another reason is that uh, many of these senators came in, the ones that are currently up, like John Tester in Montana, uh, I, I, don't know, I don't remember if it was Donnelly or not, if he came in in 06. Um, but these guys rode a wave into a, a Democratic wave into the Senate right. in 2006 yep. and then had a favorable year in 2012 landing in a presidential cycle. Yep. And now they're actually in a favorable year again because they're the out party in a midterm. Right? right. And that's another dynamic that we need to talk about. Presidents do horrible in midterm elections. Right. They, the, the standard basis effect is that presidents will lose seats. And until 1998 and 2002, um, presidents had lost almost every single midterm election since the Civil War. The only exception was 1934. So we have a lot of history of this midterm effect where it's just a referendum on the president and they're going to lose seats. The question is how many? Right? Yeah. Um, so a lot of wave elections actually happen in these off-year midterms yes. uh, because the president's not on the ballot and everybody is judging his record for the last two years. Um, so uh, in addition to that, you have a lot of pre presidential coattails in many elections. So the president's bringing in many more seats than otherwise they wouldn't, which means that the, the team, the party that's winning a presidential election often is overexposed in yes. House and Senate races. Yes. They're picking up seats where they shouldn't be. Yes. And that makes them even that much more vulnerable in the midterm when the president's not on the ballot, the party's not going to turn out in the same way, mm -hmm. and all of a sudden these uh, once uh, borderline districts are now all of a sudden uh, very, very vulnerable to the opposite. Or, or even some of these Senate states. I mean, Heidi Heitkamp gets in right. there by a squeaker, right. and you know now you have some interesting voter accessibility issues that she's going to have to deal with as well. Um, you know, which leads to you know this this fifteen percent chance of the the Democrats re t taking the Senate that we're hearing from everywhere. I mean, another thing to say generally about midterm elections is you know the Republicans have something of a large majority in the House right now. People don't yeah. think of it that way because their caucus is sort of split, but this is, they have a large number of seats, and when you have a large number of seats. By definition, you have the marginal seats, the right. seats that were hardest to gain. Right. Uh, and so when it's a bad year for your party and you're holding the marginal seats, you can expect to lose a lot of these. And right. this is where the rubber kind of really hits the road with this bifurcation, is that these marginal seats in the House tend to be uh, these swing districts that are centered in blue states in sort of suburbia. Right? And you think about the marginal district being something like Steve Knight's district in California, right? where uh, the marginal seat right now in the Senate is a Democrat holding a red state, right? And that's why you see these things diverge. To me, the most interesting thing about this is it interacts with sort of two other uh, trends that are related, and that is sort of the nationalization of federal elections. Uh, once upon a time, members of Congress, House or Senate, were able to develop very strong personal brands and sort of diffuse these national trends. So the trends are heading for the Democrats, heading for the Republicans, but any incumbent could build up their own brand in their district or their state that could insulate them right. from these sorts of national trends. That's almost completely disappeared. Right. Uh, there's a wonderful chart uh, we can post in the show notes maybe where you can see the, this incumbency advantage, this so-called incumbency advantage, averaged about 15 to 17 points in 1980. 
Okay, and this is rising from the post-war two era, and now it's returned down to under five points. And so, if you're a local representative and you, you know, used to skate by by building this personal brand, by bringing projects sure. to your district, by focusing on local issues, you're more and more out of luck now, and more and more beholden to the national trends, and more and more tied to your party's fate. Yeah, I mean, I'd like to drill down on just two things for the incumbency advantage uh, discussion. I mean, one is that you no longer have earmarks, so you it's harder for members to, to bring back things to their district, with it, which is problematic. But another is when people talk about incumbency advantage, they, they know, you know, they don't talk about uh, the fact that a lot of these folks decide not to run. Um, and so when you have an uh, incumbent that's running, it's someone who thinks that they have a good chance of winning re-election. Um, you know, we have had, uh, you know, 40-something uh, Republicans are are not, you know, uh, running for re-election um, on the ballot. That's a, that's a lot. 20 Democrats, too. Yeah. <laughs> it's yeah. a historic year for retirements. But it is, yeah. In addition to all those things, like you being unable to carve out your spot in, uh, legislatively, but through like these little tiny um, provisions in appropriations bills or transportation bills or whatever, we're not doing transportation bills very much anymore. We don't mm-hmm. do earmarks on appropriations, so that's gone. In addition to that, recruitment back home is no longer centered around the state and local apparatus yeah. like it used to be. Right? It used to be the local chamber of commerce that had a heavy role in this stuff. It used to be the local parties or the state parties that had a heavy role in the recruitment of candidates for congressional offices, which made that parties at the national level very, very decentralized and very, very different. Right, So it enabled very, very conservative Southern Democrats to come from the same party as a very liberal California uh, Democrat. Um, but uh, that hollowing out, the, the basically that organizational shift um, the where parties became organized started to go nationally as well. Um, and that just mirrors all the other trends that we've seen, where like governor's elections now reflect um, national trends much more likely. But this national thing, this, this idea that congressional elections are much more national than they have been, is also interesting in this respect. If, if that was the case, if uh, congressional seats right, were dictated by national trends, um, we might not expect to see a bifurcated election result like the one that we're seeing. If we're because what we've been doing essentially is predicting a wave in the House and then almost nothing in the Senate, right? Either right. Democrats lose seats right. or it comes out as an absolute wash, right. which is historically and we unusual. We need a net gain of two to retake that. Right. You look back uh, since World War II, uh, the number of elections that have had this bifurcated results where Democrats picked up uh, seats in one chamber and Republicans picked up seats in the number, only four out of the 36 elections since that period of time, right? Two midterms, two presidentials. Um, so it's 11% of the overall uh, elections since World War II. In addition to that, um, those elections tended not to be waves. They tended not to have sure. large pickups. Um, the largest pickup in the House during one of these bifurcated election years was 12. I mean, that's a, that's a below average seat pickup when you look at uh, midterms and, and, regular, and, and presidential elections. And uh, it's two or three. Three was the most, uh, most, uh, most common. The median was two. Uh, seats in the Senate. So these are not big change elections that you would see. So it'd be really, really weird to see a wave in the House not wash up in the Senate in some way, shape, or form where Senate Democrats pick up something, a state that you wouldn't expect. I, see, I still see it as a lot of function of the map. And I, I do think there is some insulation um, of incumbents in the Senate that is striking. Mm-hmm. Joe Manchin's going to hold on. Mm-hmm. Trump won his state by 50 40. points. Yeah. yeah. Uh, High Camp is most likely not going to hold on, but she's not going to lose by the 35 points or whatever that Trump won uh, North Dakota by. And so, you know, the thing that strikes me about kind of the strategies going into this is that the parties are kind of at their own 
throats on this, where in the Senate, uh, the Republican Party would like to nationalize the race, right? How should you vote in your Senate race? Well, ask a Republican. You should vote how you feel about national politics. And the Democrats, of course, would like to localize it. How should you vote in West Virginia? Well, you sure. should vote based on the personalities of candidates and what they do for West Virginia. Right. In the House, it's just the opposite. Right. The Democrats have all the incentive to nationalize this because of the basis of their race. How should you vote in California's 48th district? You should vote how you feel about national politics, and Republicans are trying to localize it. And so whether the election gets nationalized or localized based on agenda setting, the issues we talk about, can't really help one party completely and hurt one party completely. Uh, a nationalized election helps the Democrats in the House and helps the Republicans in the Senate. And so when something like the Kavanaugh hearing happens, you say, well, what's the effect of this? Well, the effect is to ex uh, accentuate this divergence of the House and Senate, uh, not to help one party or another. Um, and, and localizing the election would do the opposite. If we, if we could insulate all incumbents, well, that would help the GOP in the House and would help the Democrats in the Senate. Sure. And, here's yeah, the and we've seen, you know, some of these candidates really run with this. Uh, you know, Donnelly um, running for re-election in the Senate uh, is is not running as a major standard partner of the par bearer of the, of the Democratic Party. Uh, it's hard for him to admit that he is a Democrat in right. most of his uh, communication. Um, but on the House side, uh, I think you're you're absolutely right. I mean, as Tip O'Neill said, all politics is local is something that hasn't been true for kind of yeah. a long time. Um, and, and this is a particularly right. He, is he a Republican? It's not even clear he says he's a Republican yeah. anymore. Right? He's, and you know, he likes healthcare and, and conditions yeah. on MSNBC all the time. Yeah. Like, dude. Well, and this is an interesting dynamic for uh, you know a, a president who has uh, approval ratings that are underwater yep. uh, to an extent where this is a little different from what we've seen in previous cycles. Um, so how does that play out while he's still enormously popular with his base? So you've had uh, you know members of Congress have been unwilling to criticize him on different things because then there's going to be a, a backlash for them. Mm. Um, and yet he's nationally, you know, fairly unpopular when compared with other recent presidential examples. I have a pet, I have a pet theory about nationalization that uh, I'll be testing over the next decade or so, but it's this, <laughs> is that nationalization is happening slower to state races than it is to federal races. Yeah, and I agree with that. this is because governors and state officials have more direct kind of interaction with street level issues like like mayors no one thinks about the republican party's national platform with the mayor they want the mayor to fix the potholes and make the schools good and same with governors uh to a certain degree and this is why people like governor baker can win in massachusetts and governor hogan can win in a runaway in maryland is because they're more tied to sort of street level issues now my pet theory is that this makes those sorts of people better senate candidates going forward because they're going to have uh, produced a personalized brand in their state at the state level that's going to attract people to them. And the one person that strikes me as an example of this right now is Bredesen in Tennessee, right? He's less at the mercy of the national winds precisely because he had been a state-level official in Tennessee in a role that is less determinative by national winds. Uh, and that helps him. Well, whether it's over the top or not against yeah. Blackburn, I don't know in that Senate race. But well, to me, it strikes me as the type of person a party that doesn't dominate a state wants to run in their Senate race in the future, like Hogan in Maryland or Baker in Massachusetts, strike me as the kind of people who could, in theory, upset these nationalization of trends in states that are very much not uh, in line with their party's position. Yeah, I it's wish really I were that optimistic. I don't think that somebody like Baker could have a, a future in national Republican 
uh, politics. Um, but I do think that you know Bernstein is an, an interesting example in Tennessee, although the you know the the race is leaning uh, towards Marsha Blackburn right now. Um, this is someone who had a kind of an earlier political career. You know something about Baker is that he's in there right now. Um, so. I think that's well, an element too. Don't forget there's a juxtaposition to Bredesen, right, where you have Rick Scott running for yep. um, Senate in the ha in Florida against in uh, sitting Senator Bill Nelson. Rick Scott's currently currently, currently mm -hmm. the governor of Florida. Um, and now he's being uh, chased by not only national wins, but also some state-level uh, scandals, such as like not dealing with fertilizer and green right. algae and red tide and all sorts of other terrible <laughs> environmental things that are going on in my home state. Um, what uh, is up with Florida? Uh, well, we'd, we'd that's like always know. a question everybody's asking. But um, Florida man's going to vote, we and we're going to find out exactly who comes out <laughs> I want to bring him on the show. Now, one of the things that I find interesting about this nationalization of, of politics is when you're predicting a wave, right, you're, you're predicting you have a certain set of assumptions, right? Um, those assumptions are the president's approval is really low, right? That that often corresponds with a wave, and we've got that uh, yep. presidential approval. This as of this morning was, um, on average, I believe forty two percent, right? Which is actually down a percent plus uh, from just a week or two ago. Um, and historically, forty two percent is muy no no bueno, right? Mm -hmm. it is it is very not good for the president's party. Um, on the other hand, we have a very good economy, right? Um, and we have a lot of other peace and prosperity measures that you would objectively say, well, his presidential approval should be good, even though it's not, right? Um, but when we're predicting a wave now, what we're also predicting is the distribution of votes. So it's not just who's mobilized the vote, as you would find in like a low approval um, midterm where the out party is going to be super mobilized to come out and turn out their vote because the president's so unpopular. But you also have a distribution issue because Democrats become sorted and kind of concentrated in like tight urban areas where they haven't been as competitive in suburban and suburban and rural areas. So in this particular wave that we're discussing, we're not only talking about like the concentration of votes, we're talking about the dispersion of votes. And so the nationalization thesis, right, where we're talking about Oh, wait, well, it can wash up in the House and wash up in the Senate one time. Like, that would be really, really interesting for this particular election. Also, defy those assumptions to some degree. If you're assuming a large mobilization of a particular party that's going to bring in a wave in one chamber, you would also assume that, that dis if it's dispersed enough, right, that it would also bring in some sort of unusual result in the Senate. And so I think it's going to be really, really interesting to watch because it, it would be unprecedented since post in post-war history to have a large, large result in the House that didn't also mirror that in the Senate. Um, in other words, if Republicans didn't lose a seat, it would be a weird historic election because of the bifurcated result. Sure. Thanks. Okay, though. Um, you know, just to, to segue a little bit, I mean, I think this is a great question that you bring up of, of mobilization, and people have talked about what could be mobilizing people, what issues, uh, you know, is, is there a effect of the Kavanaugh hearings, is there effect of different policy issues, you have a bunch of people who are interested in single payer, you have a bunch of people um, who are really, you know, talking about pre-existing conditions a whole lot. You have a lot of, uh, you know, rhetoric from uh, the president about immigration, uh, the caravan, all this other stuff. And, you know, I, I think that these are really interesting things to talk about and tease out, especially since, you know, your opinion on any particular issue, whether that be something I just mentioned or something else, um, and the likelihood that that affects your vote is a little bit of more of a question mark than the way it's normally treated in the news. So the pre-existing condition issue is absolutely the one that Democrats are just hitting Republicans over the head with right yep. now. Um, you know, if you wanted to look at it from a 
pure cynical perspective that all issues are things to put in front of voters to draw attention and they aren't substantive at all, you would say, well, the immigration stuff the president brings up is a direct reaction to try and get the pre-existing condition agenda off the table because it seems to be the thing that's absolutely destroying Republicans. The significant Republicans are just going out and saying <laughs> that they're for protecting right. pre-existing right, conditions, yeah. Yeah. even when they're quite obviously have not supported have that position in the past that. and don't appear to have any intention to do it in the future. Or are currently but, attacking that provision. Right. <laughs> that issue like Scott Walker has come to the fore as the <laughs> issue of the campaign. And, you know, what the Republicans, I think, a year ago would have told you they were going to do to combat that sort of thing, combat health care agenda for the campaign, say, well, we'll just fall back on our tax cuts. And that really has not come to the fore. The tax cuts aren't as popular as they thought they would be. They don't seem to have uh, resonated with voters in, in a pocketbook sense, at least yet or maybe ever. And it doesn't seem to be like something that a Republican can run on in a swing district and get a lot of traction with, which um, I think is a little bit of a surprise. Well, I, th- um, I mean, I, you know, I wrote a newsletter piece kind of predicting this reaction to the tax cut bill, um, you know, almost a year ago. But... Um, uh, the uh, the tax cut issue is really interesting to me, particularly when you juxtapose it with something like immigration. Um, you know, it has been kind of slightly declining in popularity. It is underwater in terms of its polling, so there are more people who uh, disagree with it than agree with it. Um, and to the consternation of congressional Republicans, the president hasn't clearly advocated and highlighted this as an accomplishment, which is the signature legislative accomplishment uh, of his time in office thus far. Um, you know, I do think this says something about the utility of this issue going forward, which is really fascinating. I also think that if you look at polling, uh, Pew recently had something out that looked, you know, asked, tried to find out what the plurality of voters were most interested in, and that issue was immigration. Um, uh, Republicans a little bit more than Democrats, but both quite interested in this issue. Uh, we're maybe not shocked to see Trump highlight this, uh, not uh, just as you very well put it, uh, to uh, talk less about pre-existing conditions, uh, but also because this is something that resonates. This is something that gets people excited. Now, I, I heard a quote the other day that is totally historically inaccurate, but <laughs> is nonetheless interesting. <laughs> Why do you repeat it here? Repeat it right here on the podcast. Authoritatively. <laughs> so a former Republican member of Congress was talking about his their odds, and I forget who it was or, or, or where I heard it, but they said uh, when the economy's when the economy's doing bad, people vote with their pocketbook, and when it's doing well, they don't. Right. And I thought that was a really interesting, totally not totally historically inaccurate. accurate uh, <laughs> view of elections, but nonetheless, it, it mirrors something that we've seen for the last eight years, which is that uh, election results are increasingly decoupling from the overall perception of the economy, which is weird, right? Um, That is new. And in many ways, a lot of these uh, other dimensions, if you want to call them that, or other issues that come to the fore, like immigration, like racial issues, like voting rights, like gun rights, those become much more salient to the public, or at least they have within the last three or four election cycles, which is very interesting. This ties, this ties right in with what you were saying before about the president's approval rating and the state of the economy. Those things have moved largely in tandem since World War II and since we've had yep. you know good scientific polling at our disposal. And and so th- that brings up a couple of things. One, what you say, I think, is right, is that we've had this decoupling of these issues where people are no longer simply reflexively approving or disapproving of the president based on their view of the economy. They aren't sort of correlative things anymore. But it also raises sort of questions about how well we can kind of predict this election. 
Uh, these are two things that we've often used to predict the election, and they often are very correlated. And when they're not correlated, we just don't have a lot of data on the past on which one takes priority. Uh, it could be the case that the economy does, in which case a lot of these predictions of dire straits of Republicans are probably overblown. Yep. Uh, on the other hand, if the approval rating is dominant, then this looks really bad. I, the only election I know of where we've had such a divergence in the post-war era is 1968, when the economy was quite good. Uh, but Johnson was in the garbage can because of anger at uh, him over Vietnam. Uh, and that is a difficult election to tease out in terms of our current election. One, because it was a presidential election. And two, because the president declined to run. Uh, he was one of these incumbents who saw the writing on the wall that was going to be renominated. Right. I shouldn't say that. Jonathan Bernstein will get mad at me. He tried to run. <laughs> he tried to run, and he Jonathan lost. Jonathan Bernstein also doesn't listen to podcasts, right, so true. just fire <laughs> Johnson tried. Johnson tried to run and got destroyed by barely beating Gene McCarthy and his band of college kids in New Hampshire primary, and then he dropped out. Uh, so it's not a lot. Of, we don't get a lot of leverage out of that example. But it is, you know, the one situation we have where the president's uh, approval rating diverged from the economy, and it was not good for the president. Sure. Whether it can be good for its party here, it, it, I, I'm fascinated to see what happens simply because it'll give us a better understanding of that, and whether any of this matters, or so much is now tied up into partisanship and partisanship intensity. I, I can't wait to see the overall turnout numbers from this midterm. Um, yeah. Sure. Uh, partially because I suspect there's more voter enthusiasm, and they may be higher, but also because I think there's going to be some things that are just absolutely disappointing. I do not believe 18 to 20 year olds are going to turn out and swarm. No, they're not. In fact, <laughs> I, made a, I will continue to bet against that until I go broke. Yeah. I said something the other day. You, mean, like if you don't think there's going to be a Taylor Swift effect? There was a, there was a, there was a thing the other day I, I read. It's like Beto's planning on turning out the, the, the young vote to win. I was like, well, that's a bad sign. Right? It's like whenever you're relying on the young voters, it's a sign that you're behind. That's no. It's even worse. It's like, it's like if your plan to get gun control passed in America is the ride on the backs of these angry teenagers. <laughs> so yeah. better get another plan. Yeah. Well, if you've got $60 million, you know, you can do pretty much whatever you want with it. That's a fascinating so, race, by the way. <laughs> yeah. I, I, I thought this eight months ago, I think, and I still think it now, and that Beto was headed for a five-point loss <laughs> that was never in doubt but is also going to do wonders for his national standing in the Democratic Party and nothing for his standing as a senator from the state of Texas. Which would explain why, why he's still fundraising at this very second. He's still fundraising. He's got ads. Like, well, we're, we're, we're statistically tied. It's like, well, you're down four, right? So that's <laughs> like... A large that's, I mean, you've got to bet on some weird polls in order to, to claim statistical tie, but still donating after he he raised 38 point something million dollars in yeah. one quarter, which is yeah. insane. He was, he, was always absolutely running, he was always running for two things. And I think this is another feature of current American politics that is somewhat new is that it's really easy to become a national figure now as a member of the House relative to what it was 30 years ago. It's easy to fundraise nationally, develop your own donor base nationally, to get media exposure nationally. Right. And you can do things like run in Texas and lose which often would have ended your career 30 years ago. But as long as you come close now and you set off a wave of fire about yourself, it seems like Beto's a, a certainly a player in Democratic politics going forward now, if not an outright candidate for 2020. Sure. Well, and it's also been interesting to see, uh, you know, Republicans go to bat for Ted Cruz, who was a, you know, has his anti-establishment bona fides very firmly uh, established. Yeah, Mia Copa over here six years ago when Ted Cruz got in the Senate, in 12 and then uh, headed the shutdown in 13 I said well this is a man who does not want to be in the United States Senate and <laughs> wants to be the President of the United States and after well, that does not want to be anywhere but the United States Senate and I was dead wrong about that you were half right about that uh, well right, right. Yeah. 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 let's be nice to you certainly <laughs> want to be President but I, I cannot 
believe that you can survive as an effective senator the way Cruz is going about being a senator. And I still don't think you can survive as an effective senator. I just didn't realize he'd want to survive as an ineffective senator. So here's my question. So so let's assume Beto is running for president now. And now we're pronouncing it correctly. <laughs> yes. Let's, let's assume Beto is running for president, right? And he's, going, he's got to vacate his House seat, and he loses to Ted Cruz in predictable fashion. We still think he's a candidate in 2020. I'll tell you what. I'll tell you what. You I got everyone a candidate in 2020. Well, yes, everybody. It exactly. doesn't mean they're a good candidate. <laughs> I said, I said, I said, Every Democrat in the history of the world is running for president. I said exactly. I said the same thing about Beto accidentally on Twitter, and by accidentally I mean purposefully, but incorrectly. <laughs> I immediately got told well, Lincoln lost in 1858, and, I, and that, that is obviously true. Yeah, but the next president's not going to win by 37 percent of the popular vote either. I mean. <laughs> a little bit of historical uniqueness of that I mean, particular yeah, time. Beto can leverage the slave issue. <laughs> he can have the nomination too. That's right. Just and, and he needs a Republican senator. That's gonna, a long yeah. time. He just needs to debate a Republican senator for a couple of years too. Right? Yeah. So. I, so I mean, I don't know. I think that I think it's. I don't think it's. Obviously, you'd rather win if you want to run for president. I don't think it's inherently damning uh, for Beto that he's going to lose. But I think he has other problems. One is that. My guess is that despite our partisanship and despite Obama becoming president, I, I get the sense that Beto is going to be perceived as too young and too inexperienced. Mm. Um, and that may be my personal bias, but I, I get the sense that he is not going to have sort of that presidential experience, luster, gravitas that people look for. And it'd be a lot easier for him if he got in the United States Senate and could wrangle his way onto the foreign Are relations community or whatever and pretend mm-hmm. that he had the experience. Well, Maryland yeah. 6, John Delaney doesn't have a shot. I'm sorry. <laughs> <laughs> Get to the bank. Right. If John Delaney's president, I will come back to you and issue the biggest mea culpa ever. John Delaney. January 2020. John Delaney's a House member from Maryland. Is it 6? Six? Six. 6. It's 6. Okay. Um, who's who's literally, literally running District. for president. Like He's announced he's been in Iowa and nobody knows who he is. In fact, nobody knows who he is so much that 538, who's running an ongoing tally of people running for president, won't include him despite the fact he's actually... He's in the most recent draft. He's, okay. He finally got in. All right, well, that's good. name recognition that poor guy, political junkies. He also couldn't even get credit for visiting. I mean, he spent like entire months in Iowa. They don't <laughs> like, know who he is in Maryland 4. He <laughs> <laughs> start there. I know. It's, it's, it's going to be a tough slog, yeah. uh, Congressman. But Why don't we do some predictions? Yeah, sounds good. I mean, okay. we yeah, go that? ahead. So uh, I, I will throw out the over-under, and you will tell me what you think. Sure. Okay. Uh, the Democrats pick up 30 seats in the House. Over. Over. Over? Yeah. I will take the over on that as well. Uh, the... Republicans hold the Senate with precisely 51 seats that they have right now. Under. Do you think they're going to gain seats? I think they lose Uh one. Oh, you think they lose one? Yeah. So you think the Democrats are going to pick up a seat? Yeah. We better get into this then. 50-50. Where are the pickups for the Democrats and Uh, where are the pickups for Republicans? Well, it looks like um, they pick up Nevada and Arizona. Okay. They may drop uh, North Dakota. Okay, so you're holding on in Missouri. I'm holding Missouri, holding losing in, in Texas, holding in Florida, winning in Tennessee. Oof. Well, no, Texas they don't control, so that doesn't matter. Right. They lose. So that, they that, pick up now you have, so you've picked up two seats there, right? Picked well, up. Tennessee was Corker's seat, so that's yeah, 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 just that's a pickup. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, no, no. We're talking about the Democrats. So oh, it, oh. there's some combination there. I think I believe Republicans lose a seat overall. 
I don't think so. I think the Republicans are picking up seats in the Senate. I think they might pick up, but if they do, we're talking about... Listen, I trusted the polls in 2016. It didn't turn out well. I think... think, Go with history on this one. I think Heitkamp's toast. Yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah. I mean, her yeah, yeah. the voting average in North toast. Dakota is something like she's down 9 or 13 or 11 Blackburn's or something. going to win, too. But that's, mm. a, that's a Republican seat. That's a Republican but I think, seat. But I think that yeah. Arizona and Nevada, the Democrats could win, but I would be more likely to think they'll win one of those than two. Mm. And I think they'll drop some combination of Indiana, Missouri, Montana, and Florida. Yeah, I mean, just all of these are one toss-ups of those, right one now. Of Arizona, four. Florida, hmm. Indiana, yeah. Missouri, Montana, Nevada. I do, all, I do all, think that. A lot of, I, I do think they're that. They're defending a lot of turf. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I do think that, um, you know, one of the things I'm very much uh, looking for is what's the reaction of the Republican Party to the election and what's the reaction of President Trump to the election. Uh, if they lose 35 seats in the House and just hold the Senate at 51 flat seats... I don't think there's going to be a lot of room to do anything but blame the president. Now, he's going to try and blame all sorts of people, but I don't think the Republicans in Congress are going to have room to do anything except to say that he's dragging them down. Even if that's not the public explanation, that's going to be the result. And the question is, how does that translate into their behavior during the 116th Congress? And that's wide open to me. It's not obvious to me which direction it will go. Um, but it seems to me that that is going to become the conventional wisdom among congressional Republicans. Well, we're going to have further legislative ossification, um, and we're going to have some investigations. And we've got <laughs> Lots of a lot of latent public opinion that could start to change in different ways if different investigations turn up different things. Yeah. I mean, you know? I, one kind of unforced to this is that if the Republican majority in the House turns into a minority... It's not going to be a minority that is somehow more kind of amenable to the Democrats. It's going to be less so, right? Right. Because all the seats that would have been amenable to kind of centrist ideas are going to be Democratic seats. Mm -hmm. And so this is a classic kind of result is that congressional parties that lose a lot of seats learn the wrong lesson and become more extreme. Um, It's just the nature of the beast. And... The oh, strange the thing is, the both who are making the argument are the more extreme people. Yeah, so but both they parties agree with themselves. If the Democrats gain forty seats in the House, both parties become more conservative. It's strange to say that, but it's true. Yep. Right. The Republican Party moves to the right because they lose their centrist, and the Democratic Party gains a whole bunch of centrists. So mm-hmm. both parties move the direction of the gain. Um, not to say that the House becomes more conservative because party control flips, yep. but both parties have to reckon with the idea that their caucus now is more conservative. In fact, just barely gaining the majority leaves the center of the Democratic Party further to the left and gaining this already in a huge landslide, yep. um, which has an effect on things like caucus elections and policy positions yeah. and directions that caucus wants to go. Not only um, that, but like the types of votes that you want to take, right? Mm-hmm, um, right. You're not doing a Medicare for all necessarily just nope. because you have 240-some-odd seats, yes. right? That's, yes. like, that's, a, that's like way dicey for like 60 of the people yeah. in your caucus. Yeah. We're also going to start seeing the divisions in the Democratic Party that everyone's been ignoring because they're in the minority. You know, How big are those divisions? I mean, this is something that I've wondered about and I'd like to hear what you think uh someone uh an anonymous academic who will be named perhaps later perhaps never was asking me if i thought the progressive party the progressive caucus in the house did they is it true that they kind of didn't wield a lot of power and my answer was kind of like yeah they don't wield a lot of power um will a new majority in kind of this age of trump embolden them to try and wield more power perhaps by banding together on the floor and i said i don't know i don't so far, I haven't seen any reason to believe that they were going to be like a 
Freedom Caucus type that might take their concerns to the floor, but that could change. Right. You know, I think we're in this atmosphere, you know, in recent years, and I think this is true of both parties, that the degree of feeling of negative partisanship, that is, you know, you oppose the other party more than you're supporting your own, has these kind of fall over legislative effects where the parties are not kind of coalescing around what their legislative prescriptions would be. Um, you know, the Republicans were out of power for a long time and had many, many votes to get rid of the ACA. Uh, they did not put forth a, you know, uh, considered proposal for what they would replace it with. Yeah. And, you know, the rest is history that we all know. On the same token, uh, by the same token, the, the Democrats haven't seemed to have cohered around uh, something to protect or fix the ACA, you know, while they've been out of power. You know, you've, you've seen a lot of, oh, well, we don't like Trump. Well, okay, but what are you for? And, you know, if you're one of those people who needs the ACA, uh, you, you sometimes feel like maybe you don't actually have a champion in this fight. Uh, these people seem silent a lot of the time. Yeah, I think I think a couple things have changed significantly. Um, so the, I, I would agree that the, the Progressive Caucus did not wield a lot of a lot of power, and and when they did wield it, they did it behind the scenes. It wasn't outright warfare yes. um, in the Democratic Party. Um, there have been a few things that have changed uh, since the last time Democrats had the majority. One, uh, that left wing of the party has become better funded and better organized. Mm. Um, and so I think that those two things would play into the kind of strategic warfare that people in the Progressive Caucus may want to have going forward. Um, two, I think that the base is mobilized and has expand significant, expanded significantly under this presidency. Um, there are a lot of things that have become mainstream in democratic politics that were just on the fringes or only in the progressive side, progressive wing of the caucus before. Um, you're seeing a lot of support for Medicare for All. We're seeing a ton of support for free college education. You're seeing a ton, a ton of support for aggressive gun control, not just like background checks at, at, uh, at gun shows. Um, you're seeing a lot of that stuff. And so I think that does come up uh, very, 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 very um, coarsely against some of these moderate conservative democratic districts should they win them, right? So is Connor Lamb going to be able to support something like any, anything like what they just saw? Well, probably not on, on those three or four issues that I just mentioned. Um, are you going to be able to do that in a R plus five district or an R plus seven district or many of the R plus whatever it is that are in the toss up or the uh, lean democratic columns? Um, no, I don't think you are. I think you're going to see these divisions come out to the fore. Now, the interesting thing is if they only win the House, they come out less than if they win the House and the Senate, in my opinion. Right? If they're in the House, then you're playing a lot of political games. You're using the influence of and the, and, and the power of the gavels in order to um, play, poli play politics, hurt the presidency, expose him, hurt his public opinion, all of those things. Um, you're also doing a lot of messaging votes, which means that you're playing with blanks, so to speak. You're not really shooting for policy wins necessarily. What you're doing nice is metaphor. you're, right, what you're doing is basically doing show votes um, that are very, very uh, high profile. So you think of the repeal of Obamacare. Now you win the House and the Senate and you're actually trying to legislate potentially with the President of the United States. I think that those divisions come out more seriously because you're actually trying to negotiate with the President on some of these issues. Um, Maybe not gun control, maybe not uh, immigration, but certainly something like infrastructure. infrastructure right, exactly. Um, or some of these other uh, uh, important uh, democratic platforms. So, yeah, I think there would be like stark differences. I don't know that we'll necessarily see them if they just take the House. I think that's more the chance if they take the House and the Senate. Um, but you'll definitely see some, some very, very interesting democratic politics should they win. I think that ACA is fascinating because my impression is now that there's a vast majority in Congress against the ACA from either the left or the right. Uh, the ACA was not 
really anything but a compromise when it was passed in 2009, and the right always hated it. And now with the move towards Medicare for all for a significant portion of the left, I no longer think that like patching the ACA is anything but a compromise position, whereas mm-hmm. one point you might have thought that as the Democrats' median position was like fix up the ACA. I'm not sure that's true anymore. Right. I think there's enough move on the left where they want to basically essentially scrap the ACA. I mean, maybe they could do that Medicare X idea that people have to add, you know, a Medicare option to the ACA exchanges and things like that. But it looks to me more like the Democratic Party is ready to move on from the ACA as sort of an interim step to what they what they finally want to get to, whether it's some sort of Medicare for all or some sort of other uh, uh, health care program. But it's amazing to me how few Democrats, I think, see patching the ACA as anything more than a compromise position well, at this point. Yeah, I mean, I, it's also something that it isn't really satisfying to credit claim on. Hey, I want to do this. You know, I have, like, you know, a Clinton-esque list of, like, 30 different policy options that would make the ACA slightly better. Um, yeah, I mean, it's, it's a lot more kind of emotionally satisfying I to, think like, right. single-payer. But, I mean, one, I think one thing which that is a criticism they do sure. want to claim is that they want to be able to reduce premiums. Sure. And one way yes, to do that no, is no, within fair, the context of the ACA, but I don't see a lot of people like making that their central argument anymore on healthcare. Yeah, I think that's because people making the, they defended the people ACA. making the central argument yeah. on healthcare right now fall into two different categories. Either you're on the progressive left and you're doing Medicare for all, or you support pre-existing conditions. Right. Those are the, those are sort of the, the two ways in which the healthcare debate boils down. Nobody's talking about CSR payments. Nobody's talking right, about right, improving right. exchanges. Nobody's talking about for any sure. of the like actual mm-hmm. legislative fixes that'll occur if uh, Democrats were to take back and try to shore up the ACA. Um, I do think there's much more divergence. And if you're, you support Medicare for all, you're either way out on the left or you're running for president. Right? Those are those are the right. types of candidates that are supporting those types of things. Um, the broad consensus type stuff, the pe- stuff that people take for granted, are the CSR payments, the things that shore up the subsidies for the healthcare exchanges, stuff that like Susan Collins and Lisa Murkowski are for. That would be unconventional or uncontroversial um, in any other Congress other than a Republican-controlled one. Um, I think that those get significant amounts of votes and are just passed fairly easily, um, even if Democrats take one of the chambers and we're still in like partisan warfare. Um, so I don't know that it's as mainstream. I do think you're right that the ACA overall is seen as like a less uh, viable option. I think people on the left are attacking it and people on the right are attacking it. And there may be less support for it, but it's still the vehicle through which people are getting health care. And I think you'll see many of these like very tiny fixes that will be among the most important things that would pass in the next Congress should Democrats take over. Well, it's, it's just a complicated issue. And what makes it more complicated is that people want to both d- Democrats want to support the the policy, but also uh, attack Trump for any difficulties that he's creating with it, mm-hmm. uh, which is a, a really high bar of voter information to clear. I mean, let's just be clear yep. about that. Yep. We've hit the 41-minute mark we of Congress made. two beers in, so we're going to go around the table for our parting shots. Uh, does anyone want to start? Lord, do you have a parting shot you'd like to impale us with this week? Wow, that's I'm loving all the you know very aggressive Im- imagery here. Um, so um, you know, I I think something that's that's interesting that is um, may not actually have an effect on uh, the voting that happens, um, but is is something that people should be talking about is just um, voter accessibility issues. Mm-hmm. I mean, the Senate. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, the last time we reauthorized the Voting Rights Act in 2006 is while we still had Section 5, the preclearance provision that we got rid of uh, in Shelby County versus Holder. 
Um, you know, this was this is was unanimous uh, in the Senate and was nearly so in the House. Um, this is an issue that has moved really, really rapidly. Um, we're seeing a lot of action in different uh, venues, which is kind of fascinating. I think it has a lot to do with people's feelings about uh, immigration as well. Um, you know, our percentage of uh, foreign-born persons is approximately what it was at the beginning of the 1900s, and that had a lot of legislative consequences. So my um, bellicose parting shot is one for um, an interest in democracy as a process that one does, um, and that uh, these are, are issues that are, I think, important going forward, um, even if they don't have an immediate effect on voting totals. Uh, so I guess my parting shot would be if Republicans manage to hold on to the House and to the Senate, the filibuster is going to be in very, very interesting territory next Congress. Now, um, people have debated whether or not it's going to be the legislative filibuster or if you can nuke like a very specific part of the legislative filibuster. I actually don't know that that would be the next thing, right? Uh, what there there seems to be very little that Republicans agree on right now. They don't they don't seem particularly ambitious from a from a policy standpoint, uh, but they do seem to want to eye uh, changes to the tax code once again, right? Tax 2.0, which is making some of these changes permanent. Now, uh, many many would rightly believe that you can't make these things permanent, right? You cannot. Uh, take a uh, tax code and suddenly uh, make individual income taxes permanent through reconciliation, for example. But I think that's exactly where they would try to do it. And rather than going nuclear on the filibuster, I think they may try to reinterpret the, the reconciliation rules uh, that would be surrounding that. Uh, we came close to doing that during tax reform and healthcare reform in terms of provisions that were and were uh, not included in the overall bills there. But it, it strikes me as a uh, more acceptable version of a um, expedited process where you're only passing something with 51 without outright nuking the norms and traditions of the Senate on legislative process. So I think simply expanding what reconciliation is applicable to would probably be the most likable, most likely scenario there. Uh, but that's, again, holding that uh, all the pro projections are wrong, again, and that Republicans are in power and we're talking about what they want to do in the upcoming elections. My parting shot is also about the democratic process. I have long been an opponent of the ballot initiative initiative of changing state laws. I think it's a horrible, uh, a horrible technique introduced by the progressives in the early 1900s. Nevertheless, we have close to 200 statewide ballot initiatives up on uh, on Tuesday for voters to and uh, two in particular that I'm watching are uh, Proposition One in Michigan, and I think it's Proposition Four in Utah, which both affect recreational marijuana. And also the ballot initiative in Florida about reenfranchising uh, felons who have had their voting rights taken away. I think both of these are extremely important issues. As a longtime opponent of putting nonviolent people in jail, I would love to see recreational marijuana uh, legalized throughout the country. It's one of the prime ways we put uh, young black men in prison for no good reason. And on the opposite token, I would love to see the felon disenfranchisement laws overturned in Florida. That's about a million and a half voters. Uh, who currently can't vote in Florida elections, and I think their voting rights should be restored. So look for those on Tuesday, and look for your favorite ballot I voted on three in Virginia. <laughs> Two of them were statewide. One of them was a local school bond issue. For some reason, we continue to bond over $200 million a year, it feels <laughs> like, to the Fairfax County uh, School Board, and uh, uh, and that's my parting shot. I hope you all enjoyed this episode of Congress Two Bears In. On behalf of Josh and Laura, we will see you next time after the election. It will be a brave new world, and we'll be here to bring it to you.